Joel chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness there is spread upon the mountain a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all the generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the climbing of chariots, they leap up on the top of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, people are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march, each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city, they run upon the walls, they climb up into the houses, they enter through the windows like a thief. The earthquakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome, who can endure it? Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord, your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord, your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Now our text. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and the foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, And rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for your abundant rain, for you abundant rain. 
early in the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now we'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 50 and ending in verse 58. First Corinthians chapter 50, 15, verse 50 to 58. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the, the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts out the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you bow your heads with me? Our God and Father, we know that we do not come to trivial matters, but the legislation of life and of death. So we ask that you would give us hearts of understanding, that you would feed us by the word about your Son, Jesus Christ, that our minds would not wonder, but that we would soak, uh, soak in every flavor of, of, of Christ as he's held out before us this morning. This we ask in his name. Amen. Well, desperate times do call for desperate measures. Uh, we've seen the way that this has really turned out in the book of Joel so far, how judgment after judgment after judgment has left the land desolate, and all they've left to do is cry out to God. What do you do in those moments? I, I want to really immerse us in the drama of the narrative and the emotion of the narrative. What do you do when you're at wit's end, when there's Nothing left to do except cry out. And what exactly is it that you're hoping for in that moment? Perhaps at best you're thinking that in this famine you'll get a, a morsel of bread and a, and a sip of water to tide you over for one evening. Just enough, just a, just a small little deliverance. That's all you could possibly hope for. A moment's reprieve. We have such pessimistic imaginations, don't we? I think it's 
for this reason that we love a good redemption story in the arc of a character who goes from absolute desperation in the trenches to the greatest exaltation in honor and glory and happy ending. We, we, in our own desperate moments, we can't really conceive of the way that someone could be restored from such a, a horrible place to the, the heights of honor and glory. In some sense, I think, I think stories, redemption stories like these, give us a, a sense of hope for ourselves too, that we might share the same odds of exaltation, of, of restoration, of hope that our characters and whatever our favorite stories are experience. That we might go from the gutter to the throne too. Take Jean Valjean, for example, in Les Mis. He goes from being a common petty thief to being exalted to this very wealthy uh, political businessman with a wonderful daughter who, in the midst of the French Revolution, experiences love. So much darkness, and yet so much hope. We have a hard time believing beauty and restoration and redemption like that. And in some sense, in the, in the, narrative of, in the drama of the narrative in, in Joel, I think that's where we find ourselves this morning at this point. They, the people have cried out in desperation. They're beckoning the Lord to hear them. They've reached their wit's end and God has got their attention. And we're thinking as onlookers to the drama, okay, maybe they'll, they'll be, there will be an ounce of restoration. Just, just a smidge. Instead, what we find is that God goes above and beyond restoring things in cosmic proportion to our expectation. We learn something marvelous from this text in this way that God does and provides when His people cry out to Him in repentance and faith. God provides super abundantly more than we could ever hope or imagine. He does marvelous things, not only in Joel, but also in the grand scheme of redemption and salvation from that great day of judgment. Not only does he remove the curse that was brought forth for their worship crisis, but he actually refills creation itself, restoring what was lost and coming again to be with them and place himself in their midst. Those three things what we're going to consider this morning. First, removing the curse in verse 18 to 20. The second, refilling of creation in verse 21 to 25. And the third, replacing presence. Removing curse, refilling of creation, and replacing presence. Now, the general theme that we notice as we begin looking at the removing of, of the curse, the general theme we notice in this section is that God is at work removing the curse. And yet within that, the first three lines of this passage tell us something significant that I want to draw our attention to. The Lord became jealous for his land. He had pity on his people. And he answers them. These are all typically things that I think we generally just gloss over because they're typical descriptions of the way that God responds to his people. But I want to look at them and observe them for a moment. This wicked people he becomes jealous over. Jealousy is one of those terms that we tend to associate uh, with negative emotions and we're uncomfortable with it, but it's not actually always a bad thing. 
Take Numbers, 29, or Numbers 5, 29 and 30, for example. This is the regulation of jealousy. When a woman has an affair under her husband and she is defiled, or when a spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he is jealous of his wife, he will present the woman before Yahweh and the priest will do to her all of this law. So in this context here, the husband is desirous of the faithful covenant commitment of his wife. He is jealous for her covenant commitment. And so it actually conveys intense desire from one covenant party to another. God, having heard the cries of his faithless people, becomes himself once again jealous for the partner that had been faithless. And to say that God becomes jealous for you then, in this sense, is probably one of the most beautiful things that a, a person living under the curse of sin could ever possibly hear. The Lord of all of the universe, the holy, righteous God of creation, wants to be in a relationship with you. He wants to come and look and have, have compassion and pity upon your cries. He also answers and speaks to his people. And that's another one of those things that we often overlook. God of creation, he, he answers me when I call out to him. He hears my cries. I'm always amazed by the, the superpower that parents seem to have when in a crowded room, like it'll be in about an hour out there, they hear their child scream or cry, and in an instant they turn and they know, and they rush to their aid. And this is exactly what was promised to God's people. We saw in Solomon's prayer and the dedication of the temple how if when we stray from our faithful covenant commitment to him and we come to him and we repent, God will actually, he, he actually does promise to answer those cries. He, he promises to come in, in, in an instant. In, their midst, in the midst of their suffering, then God remembers his covenant to, with, with, with Solomon, his word with Solomon. And he brings relief. Second, in verse 19 to 20, we see the removing of the curse as God answers them. He says that he would be sending grain, wine, and oil such that they are satisfied or that they're full. Now this grain, this wine, and this oil is a symbol in this text of three things in particular. The three different types of vegetation that they had that were staples of ancient Near East agriculture. Grasses, bushes, and trees. What's pictured here is the restoration of what the locusts had eaten and what they had lost. What had, been what had been taken away is a consequence for their sin. More importantly, the restoration of these three things in particular is representative of the offerings that were associated with them. Offerings that were depictions of their, when offered, depictions of Israel's favor and pleasingness in God's sight. So these, these are what he's saying are going to be restored. The very thing that represents you as pleasing in God's sight I could have, that you haven't been able to give because there's been nothing left to eat and nothing left to offer. There's been no grain, no wine, and no oil. I'm going to restore these. And it's interesting that as this promise of, uh, of restoration is made, there's no mention of the temple. It's in effect saying he's going to restore their joy and their gladness 
But maybe this time without the use of the temple. There's going to be a new and better way for you to be pleasing in God's sight and enjoy communion and fellowship with him in his presence. It also says that they will not be made a reproach any longer. Reproach being the shame that they received by their affliction and subjugation or the loss that they had at the hands of foreign invading armies that they were put to death by. This is, in effect, also representative of their judgment and the covenant sanctioned by God, and it's conveying that this is no longer going to be the case. You will not be put in this kind of shame and judgment any longer. And the way that God will go about removing this reproach from them is by removing the northerner himself. Now, if you'll remember, the northerner is this false pretender to the throne who rides out with an army of vast proportion and stands against God and his people in, in apocalyptic force. It is that day of judgment army that rides out against the righteous. And it's this very locust-like army that was brought out against Israel for their covenant breaking and their failure, failure of worship at the beginning of chapter 2 that we read about a few moments ago. And here in this portion of the text, it's pictured as being kind of blanketed out across the whole land. Its force is so vast that it can be sent in each direction, but this time it's not sent out in victory. It's sent out in destruction. It perishes. Now look at who has reproach and shame. The foreign invading army. And they're made to be a rot and a smell, like an army slain on a battlefield, or like the dying out of a locust plague that is washed up upon the shores in all its hordes. Augustine spoke of a locust horde that had come upon his land in the way that the, once, the, once the locusts had eaten everything, they went and drove out to the sea and died there, and there was three to four feet of piled locust carcasses that had stacked up. You can imagine the stench. They're the ones that are brought to shame. So the picture we're presented with in the first two verses of our text is the removal of the curses that God had brought. These two things in particular, the army and the cutting off of the sacrifices. Famine is put to an end. Joy and gladness are restored. Foreign invaders in apocalyptic force are brought to nothing. In effect, actually, God is removing himself in the force and presence of the curse that he had brought upon them for failing to properly worship him. So when God's people cry out, he does not just relent in force. It's not as, just as, as, if, as if he just leaves everything as it were to its own de- devices. He actually removes the curse itself. There is therefore now no condemnation. And so one Reformed father noted, even death itself, in the form of an invading army, cannot destroy the person who has looked to the Lord in repentance and faith. He removes the curse. Then in verse 21 to 25, God begins to take a whole step further in the way that he goes about responding to the repentant cry of his people as he actually goes on to refill creation. That's our second point. Look at verse 21 to 25 with me. 
Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you early, the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down on you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. In verse 21 to 23, there are three distinct groups that are mentioned, the land, the beasts of the field, and the children of Zion. These would be the three groups that were affected by the invasion of locusts or an invading army that brought along with it droughts that were mentioned in the first oracle of judgment at the end of chapter 1. The land had been made desolate. The beasts of the field were wandering about finding no food or water. Fires, things were so dry, fires roamed about the land. The children of Zion starved and had nothing to eat and each was crying out. And not only was each group crying out, but they were experiencing the fullness and the disparity of God's curse and judgment. Death was in the air. Destruction ran wild. There was no hope. This was a still uh, an empty, desolate land. So he might have just removed the curse, we might say, but he doesn't leave it there. God is pictured actually here in these first three verses as coming in and refilling creation with what had taken, been taken out by the locust armies, by the drought, by the invading army, and from the north. The vegetation is pictured as restored completely in verse 22. He, God here invades creation not in deathly judgment now but in life bringing force commanding the land and the beast to not fear and he doesn't just stop there this is notable that he addresses the people as the children of Zion This term, children of Zion, is then associating them to the place where God had given his law and where the people were assembled before him after they had come up out of Egypt. Here he commands them to rejoice and to be glad in Joel as he calls them the children of Zion. That's interesting. Do you remember when they were assembled together before Mount Zion? And God was thundering down upon the mountain, and they hear him speak, and, he spe- and they speak back, and they say, speak no more. Who can see God and live? We, we, we don't, we don't want to be this close to you. We need a mediator. We need a mediator to come and give, you, give us your law. We're terrified. That's... That's the emotion that they had before Zion. But now they're instructed to have joy and gladness. How can this joy and gladness be? 
There's a textual problem that commentators wrestle with in translating the phrase, early reign for your vindication. And that word in vindication can also mean righteousness, but that's not the word we're having trouble with today. A number of commentators go instead and translate it as, for he has given a teacher of righteousness. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given a teacher of righteousness. He has poured down on you abundant rain. Notice what's been missing in Joel up to this point has been any mention of a king who would lead the people in righteousness and justice and equity. The middle of that verse is a Christological promise that God would provide a teacher to lead them in righteousness. Now a mediator will come like Moses who will not just report the righteous requirement of the law and give it to them on two tablets. He would himself model it perfectly. This is a righteousness in cultic life that the people had obviously, obviously been lacking and failing to attain until this point. A lack of righteousness that had actually brought the, the widespread, cataclysmic army of the Lord, day of the Lord-like judgment that the, the, the land was experiencing and that required this, this massive degree of repentance that everything be stopped, that all of the people come and gather before the courts of the Lord that, that, that the, the bride and the groom leave the consummation chamber on the night of their wedding to come and to confess their sin to the Lord. That's what had precipitated this problem. The absence of a king of righteousness who would lead the people in this way. But now... This king of righteousness, this teacher of righteousness, will be the principal reason that they have joy and gladness. And yet, at the same time, it's not the only reason that they have joy and gladness, as Joel lists. He notes that in connection with this righteous figure, God has given abundant rain. So when Solomon goes before the temple at its dedication and he prays, he says, Lord, teach them the good way in which they should walk, righteousness, and send your rain upon the land. Isaiah similarly says that the Lord promises that is, uh, um, that the Lord promises that Israel will see and hear its teachers, and He will give rain for your seed. In Psalm seventy-two six, Solomon issues forth a prayer for righteousness and that God would give justice, and he says he, he that He would be like rain that falls on the mown grass like showers that water the earth. So associated with the righteousness of this teacher, of this messianic figure who comes, is the showers that come upon the earth, the abundance of the land, and the explosion of vegetation. So there is then a connection between the blessing of rain and the person of the messianic king who teaches this righteousness. He, as it were, rains down righteousness, bringing blessing through the communication of truth so that the people would be restored to the good way.
and the superabundance that this teacher of righteousness brings with him is not just rain. God continues to refill, not just restoring vegetation and righteousness, even the storage houses that have been worn down and emptied in the famine and in the drought and in the invasion and the plagues, even those are refilled. All that was lost, the years that the locusts had taken, all that was lost, the, consequen- the, the, the consequences itself are fixed, are mitigated, are brought to no effect because he undoes the consequence. God's promised restoration presses unbelief to its ultimate limit. God's promised restoration presses belief to its limit, we should say, actually. Not only did he remove the locust, but he gave back all that was destroyed. So when the penitent sinner comes, God not only removes the curse, he refills what had been taken, the consequence. He undoes the consequence. He gives back everything that was lost and had been taken. And perhaps most notable of all, though, is the reality that he does not just remove the curse and refill creation, but he restores his own presence to us. And this is the third point. If you look at verse 26 and 27. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. This eating, this satisfaction is a sure guarantee that his people will never again want. It's a, it's a fullness. It's a wholeness. That word there is shalom, restoration. The things, the, the, the way that the world was at creation, it was perfect harmony, wholeness, and wellness, and peace. And it derives from one thing and one thing alone. Communion with God. So that's the reason that they give thanks. And that's the reason that we should give thanks. Look at how, how wondrously he's, he's dealt with us. Look at how gracious he's been to us. Look at how kind and long-suffering and patient and merciful he has been. Never again, he says, will his people be put to shame. Never again will they suffer his covenant sanctuary as this teacher of righteousness brings with him super abundant blessing. God himself will stand by them and for them. Nothing shall take them out of his hand, as Jesus says, and as he says in another place, of all that the Father has given to me, not of, of, of them, not one of them will I lose. And that statement's from the perspective of judgment and enemies. There's no reproach, no danger. No one can pluck us out of his hand. No one can bring us to shame. There's no more judgment. But from, but, but from the perspective of God in Christ, he comes to dwell with us. God himself will, will stand with us. A promise 
fulfilled in the incarnation of the teacher of righteousness. That's covenant language. They will know that I am the Lord and that I will be in their midst. I will be your God and you will be my people. I will betroth you to me forever. And that's the best news there is. Out of all of the, out of all of the promised blessings here, the removal of the curse and its consequence, the refilling of creation. So it's as if we were never punished. God himself will be with his people. Can you beat that? The amazing thing about all of this is that it's, it's all a part of promise. The covenant had promised devastation in the event of disobedience. Here and now, it also promises rain and crops and fruit if the Lord's people submit to His will, if they repent. That's Solomon's prayer. Lord, I'm dedicating this temple to You. If we fail, if people stray, and if, if a famine or a plague should come upon us, and if, if a man should turn and repent, will you hear him? And God responds, he says, absolutely, yes, I will, and I will restore him. That's a promise. That's the word of the Lord. So you can actually trust. You can rely. You can invoke as divine right and call the covenant creator who is faithful to his word to hear your cry and restore on the basis of his word. It's your right to invoke that promise upon repentance. He doesn't just give the morsel of bread or a sip of water or a glimmer of hope or ounce of restoration. He comes in super abundant blessing. Now, ultimately speaking, the picture that Joel paints was restoration that Israel enjoyed. God would restore harmony to their land. He would return the vegetation to their land and remove that enemy army from their midst. But what we're left with on this side of redemptive history is a picture of restoration in paradise, a return to the vitality of Eden. Outside the context of the land promises that were given to Israel associated with their covenant-breaking and covenant-keeping, that earthly kingdom of God, we await the fullness of this kind of earthly garden-like restoration because the restoration they received wasn't the, 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 the fullness of the promise. It was a picture of the cosmic full-scale restoration that was to come. And so this is the restoration guaranteed in our enjoyment of creation in the new heavens and the new earth, ushered in by that king of righteousness who leads his people into the kingdom. And so it's not that, you know, when we read something like this and we're thinking, okay, where's our promised, you know, where's our promised blessing? Why, isn't, why aren't my stocks taking off? That's not what it's saying. 
The promises of earthly restoration aren't obsolete. They're punted to the new heavens and the new earth. But guess what isn't obsolete? I'll pause there for a second, actually. I don't know about you, but the restoration of the new heavens and the new earth is something that I really long for. Because the toilsome nature of this life, the weed of the ground that we we battle against, is wearisome. Death is wearisome. Misfortune is wearisome. So I, yeah, I long for the new heaven and the new earth. But in, in some sense, we're not, we're, we're not left with nothing in this text. We're left with something even better. In, in, in this spiritual sense, we see that God has removed from the people of God in Christ Jesus the curse of sin and death. Where is your sting? And not only does he remove the curse, he undoes the punishment and the effects of the curse, restoring to the repentant all that was lost, communion with him, the ability to keep his law. Death is removed by the power of indestructible life. That's the curse. No more judgment. No, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He lays it upon the king of righteousness. And what about restoration? How superabundant spiritual life. Paul opens Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Him, he goes on to say, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavishes upon us in all wisdom and insight. how he exceeds our expectations when we were hopeless in the midst of despair gazing at the depths of our sin. How could we ever conceive of or hope for such a blessed fate in the face of our sin? His covenant promise. And for the repentant sinner, there is no better news. He has indeed dealt wonderfully with us. How great is our God? How, how merciful and gracious is He? It's in the face of a passage like this where superabundant cosmic restoration beyond proportion to our expectation is on display. And when I look at that, I, I can't help but conclude and I don't mean to be cliche, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable are his ways. And yes, we eat and are satisfied. We do taste that satisfaction of these 
superabundant blessings now, don't we? As we taste and we see that the Lord is good, as we feed on Christ's body and blood. And it's not just that we do now taste in part. We will then. As our Savior says, truly I tell you, I will not drink of, the, of, the, of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Restoration of Eden. Removal of sin. Feasting with him. It's all almost too good to be true. But it is. It's true for the repentant sinner who cries out. Petitioning nothing but the blood of Jesus as his mediator who stands between the vestibule and the altar making propitiation for him. Truly God has done wondrous things. This level of restoration in the face of our sin just doesn't quite make sense. Oh, how good is our God. And how we can count on him to hear us, to restore us when we cry out to him and ask him for his forgiveness. And surely that is what he wants from his people. For them to cry out. Surely when you see a God like this, he's not the angry God of the Old Testament. He is the tender loving Father whose grace and whose mercy knows no limits. Father in heaven, we give you thanks and we give you praise as the people do in Joel. For we have nothing left that we can do when we view the greatness of your grace and your forgiveness and your mercy in Christ. And we bring you forth this praise and we bring you forth this name even in his name now. Amen.